to Chasing Dramas. This is the podcast that discusses Chinese culture and history through historical Chinese dramas. We are your hosts, Karen and Kathy. As always, this podcast is in English with proper nouns and certain phrases spoken in Mandarin Chinese. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to reach out to us on Instagram or Twitter or else email us at Kathy at ChasingDramas.com. Today, we are wrapping up our discussion of the story of Yanxi Palace, Yanxi Gonglue. We did the plot recap last week for episode 70, and we also did some history. Our latest podcast episode was also talking about the story of Yanxi Palace being censored in China. And so today, we will close out our discussion of this drama with highlighting some more history for key characters in the drama that we haven't had a chance to talk about yet. Have a fun chat about where the cast is now after this blockbuster hit and some fun Q&A or miscellaneous things that we just want to get off our chest before we let this drama go. So let's start off with some history by turning to the two men in Wei Yingluo's life. Let's discuss Fu Hong first. Ah, our poor Fu Hong. We didn't even see him die on screen, so let's give him a proper goodbye. The scenes leading up to his death with him going off to war are tied to real historical activity. In 1765, Skirmishes along the Qing and Burmese or Myanmar border were enough of an excuse for the then Guizhou governor Liu Zhao to order an invasion into the city of Kangtung. Emperor Qianlong supported this decision, launching the Sino-Burmese War and the First Campaign. The Qing Empire believed that this would be a quick victory. However, with Burma being located in Southeast Asia, with a hot climate and high humidity, warfare proved extremely difficult for the Qing armies. As a recap, the Manchu hailed from Northeast China and were very skilled on horseback, making the Southern regions of Southeast Asia kind of a new territory for them. The Qing armies had outdated maps, were not acclimated to the climate, and often caught diseases that decimated the troops. Hmm, how come that sounds somewhat familiar to more recent events? Between 1765 and 1768, the Qing launched three invasions into Burma, but were roundly defeated. Countless generals and leaders died in battle on both sides. In 1769, Emperor Qianlong finally sent Fu Hong to essentially clean up this mess. Fu Hong arrived at the front in the fourth month of 1769 to take over the 60,000 strong force. Even though Fu Hong learned from the mistakes of his predecessors, the Burmese campaign was still extremely tough and dangerous. He ordered attacks on the Burmese fortress Kaotang but the Burmese were able to stand their ground for over four weeks. The timing of the attack was still during the monsoon season, and the long weeks at the front lines proved devastating for the Qing army. Many fell ill, and they began to die in large numbers. In Chinese, they succumbed to what was called zhangli, or miasma, which is now just general diseases. Fun fact, Miasma, which was the belief that bad air or poisonous air led to illness and death, 
was a belief that was very prevalent in Chinese history. Another interesting tidbit, I went on the Wikipedia rabbit hole about this war. The difference in perspectives is quite fascinating. Wikipedia paints the ending of the war as a sound defeat of the Qing army, while Bai Ke has it as the Burmese first offered a truce after the long stalemate, but Fu Hong wanted to keep fighting and was essentially held back by his subordinate officers. Not saying which is right or wrong, I haven't really conducted a lot of in-depth research about this campaign. It's just quite interesting on how history is written even in Wikipedia versus Baiku. Now let's turn back to Fu Hong. Fu Hong unfortunately also fell ill during this invasion. The Burmese had the Qing armies cornered but ultimately agreed to a truce. The Qing armies lost about a third of their force, but the Burmese also suffered heavy casualties. Emperor Qianlong was shocked to hear of Fu Hong's illness and ordered him to return to the capital immediately. Fu Hong begrudgingly agreed to a truce, and he returned with his armies in 1770 to the city of Tianjin, right to the east of Beijing, where he was personally greeted by the emperor, a great honor. Unfortunately for Fu Hong, he was too far gone with his illness, which now we know was of actually malaria. Fu Hong died in 1770 at the age of 49. After his death, Emperor Qianlong personally went to his funeral and granted him the posthumous title of Wenzhong, which roughly translates to culturally loyal. In 1796, so 20 plus years after Fu Hong's death, Emperor Jiaqing granted Fu Hong the posthumous title of Junwang, which was a prince of the second rank and allowed him to have Fu Hong's memorial tablet enshrined in the imperial ancestral tablet. Fu Hong's legacy was twofold, one of military prowess and the other of scholarly achievements. We've discussed at length his participation and contribution to the victories for the Qing Dynasty in the Jinchuan campaigns, the Zanggar campaigns, as well as briefly mentioning here the Sino-Burmese campaigns. As to written works, he participated in the compilation, writing, and editing of several notable works, including analyses of the Book of Changes, the Spring and Autumn Period, and the governing structure of the Xinjiang area. Fu Hung died in 1770, so for drama purposes, they really sped up the timeline because we are still in 1765 if we take what happened with Empress Nala into account. Fu Hung wasn't even supposed to be in Burma until 1769. Also, I did mention this in the last podcast episode. The distance between Burma and Beijing is thousands of miles away. So how did Ying Luo's poisoning reach him or the news of her poisoning reach him and how was he able to send this magical flower or antidote to save her in time to actually save her was she in a coma for like months on end unclear that's just us being nitpicky <laughs> from a timeline perspective but yeah the timeline totally didn't work Fu Hung left behind four sons and two daughters one of which was the very famous Fu Kang An we talked about him in previous episodes Fu Hong's burial ground is in the city of Tianjin today. 
Next, we'll do a quick recap of Emperor Qianlong, Wei Yingluo's husband's remaining years post 1765. The reason why I say quick is because he lived a long, long life, and there's a ton to discuss. We'd be here for like days on end if we wanted to focus on Emperor Qianlong. There's books, dramas out there, all depicting various time periods of his life. So we don't really need to focus on him today. I also joke that if we actually studied、uh, these dramas and these characters in depth, we would have a PhD by the end of this. <laughs> Emperor Qianlong. A quick recap on his history. His name was Ai Xinjueluo Hongli. He was born on September twenty fifth, seventeen eleven, and died on February seventh, seventeen ninety nine. These are the dates on the Gregorian calendar. He was the sixth emperor of the Qing dynasty and one of the longest reigning monarchs in history and longest lived. He actually stepped down from the throne and abdicated his position to his son in order to not rule longer than his grandfather Kangxi in 1796. After 60 years on the throne. The empire under his reign really peaked during the 1760s and 1770s, and it began its downward trajectory during the later years of his reign in the 1790s. During the 1760s, industries such as agriculture, handicrafts, and business all greatly expanded. The amount of farmland increased, contributing to an increase in population and to an expanded economy. When Emperor Qianlong first ascended the throne, the population of the Qing was 140 million people. By the end of his reign in 1795, that number doubled to close to 300 million people. Let's take a look at that number: 1790s, 300 million people. That is only a little bit less than the population of current-day United States, which is crazy. It took all of Europe another century to reach that population growth. The treasury maintained around seventy million taels of silver, which was around double the annual tax revenue of the empire during an extended period. Just showcasing how wealthy the empire was. During this time as well, plants and vegetables from both the New World and Old World, such as yams and corn, became widely grown, contributing to that population increase. Cotton was also widely grown, leading to an increase in trade. Emperor Qianlong heavily focused on the arts and culture, and collected countless treasures from throughout the empire. We've seen much of that in this drama, and honestly, as we have seen, because of his collection, even to today, we are able to see these, I would say, priceless treasures dating back thousands of years. One of his greatest achievements. Is the completion of Si Ku Quan Shu or the Imperial Collection of Four, which began in 1772 and completed a whopping 20 years later in 1792. It is the largest collection of Chinese history with over 36,000 volumes and close to one billion characters in the collection. The collection covered topics such as the Confucian classics, but also history, folklore, poems. Medical writings, anthologies, sciences, etc. This was a monumental achievement, but also very much politically motivated because this was a way of censorship, as the histories focused on praising the Qing regimes while belittling the Ming Dynasty rulers, who were Han people.
Militarily, the Qing engaged in several more wars under Qianlong's rule. In 1771, there was another revolt in Daxiao, Jinchuan. He crushed a rebellion in Taiwan in 1787. There was a campaign in Daviet, and there were two campaigns against the Gurkhas of Nepal in the late 1780s and early 1790s. Emperor Qianlong did usher in another golden age for the Qing dynasty, but signs of decay were evident during the later years. His military campaigns and extravagant southern inspection tours cost the government millions of taels of silver. During his later years, corruption was rampant across the empire, causing many revolts from peasants. I also want to remind listeners of the years that he came to power: 1735 to 1795. It's impressive to think that during this time, the empires of the West were vastly increasing their power and influence, but they still wanted the Chinese goods and silver. And I also think, wow, during this time frame, we had the American Revolution, also the French Revolution, lots of things happening in the West while China was still under Emperor Qianlong's rule. I don't want to comment too much on what the West wanted from China, but the late 18th century is really a turning point for the global order for the rest of the 19th and early 20th centuries. The golden age of Emperor Qianlong's reign really did not prepare China for the future. The emperor had 17 sons and 10 daughters. In 1773, the emperor was 62, and he was faced with selecting an heir. At this point, he only had seven living sons, and only a few were eligible to be chosen. So he selected the 15th prince, son of Consort Ling, whom we've seen really only briefly in this drama. Qianlong put Yongyan's name in a secret edict and hid it behind the Zhengdaguangming plaque in 1773. This did not change for the next 33 years. In 1796, Emperor Qianlong officially abdicated the throne to his son, the new Emperor Jiaqing, and Emperor Qianlong died in 1799. Alrighty, that's enough about the men. Let's close out the history with our leading lady Wei Yingluo. We've mentioned this before, but Wei Yingluo as a name is just created for the show. We'll use Wei Yingluo because everyone's familiar with that name. In history, she's just known as Lady Wei Jia or Wei Jia Shi. Unfortunately, because she was a woman, we just really don't get as much history as the gentlemen. And what we do have from her mostly revolve around edicts. That the emperor passed during her promotions or after her death, as well as other、um, notes and letters from other officials in court. We've spent quite a bit of time discussing Wei Yingluo's history as she entered the palace as a concubine in our discussion of episode forty-two. I'll do a small recap. Wei Yingluo was born on October twenty-third. 1727 in Beijing, she was part of the Han Chinese Boyu Aha of the Plain Yellow Banner by birth. Her family was promoted or Taiji into the Bordered Yellow Banner after she became consort. Putting timelines into perspective, she was Qianlong's junior by about 16 years, 
and entered into the palace at some point under what was called the xiaoxuan or the small selection. The small selection was for women from the boyi aha to enter into service in the palace as maids for various other masters. During the xiaoxuan, she must have caught the eye of the emperor. In history, Wei Yingluo became a noble lady or guiren in 1745, or the tenth year of Emperor Qianlong's reign. That made her around 17 or 18, and as we mentioned in episode 44, Wei Yingluo quickly got promoted to pin or imperial concubine in the same year, 1745. In 1748, she was promoted to consort as Lingfei. There were only four women who were allowed the consort title at any given one time, and she reached the high rank at the age of barely being 21. What's interesting is that despite her rank as consort, she didn't have any children at that point. This all changed, though, in 1756, but that was a span of almost eight years in which she was the rank of. Consort without any children, which is really rare. Starting in 1756, in a span of 10 years, she gave birth to six children, showing just how much Emperor Qianlong favored her. We talked about her children previously, but let's put all of them together. The first child she had was the seventh princess, who was born in 1756. Then it was the fourteenth prince in 1757. Then the ninth princess in 1758, the fifteenth prince in 1760, the sixteenth prince in 1762, and the seventeenth prince in 1766. Emperor Qianlong did not have any other sons after the seventeenth prince, just showing that Wei Yingluo really, really captured the attention of the emperor, despite the fact that he still had many lovely women in the harem. What's interesting is that Wei Yingluo had the seventeenth prince at around forty, and honestly, her first child that she had was also late for women at that time. We've talked about this too. Both her and Empress Nala had children in their late twenties, which seemed kind of like an outlier to me. Unfortunately, the fourteenth and sixteenth princes all died young. However, that does mean that she had four children live to adulthood. I will caveat that neither of her daughters, though, lived past twenty-five. So it was only her sons that lived to the nineteenth century or the eighteen hundreds. Wei Yingluo was promoted to noble consort in seventeen fifty-nine. After the events of the Steppe Empress or Empress Nala during the Fourth Southern Inspection Tour. Wei Yingluo was promoted to imperial noble consort or Huanguifei to fulfill the role or duties of the empress without actually being empress. In the snippets that we have from Emperor Qianlong, we see that he praised Wei Yingluo as being a gentle and considerate woman who also upheld the virtues of being a wife. This is very different from what we see in the drama, but hey, it's a drama. What we do know is that Wei Yingluo was very favored by the emperor. She accompanied him to all of these southern inspection tours where she was able. The times she missed those tours were due to pregnancy. 
Emperor Tianlong also thoroughly favored the 17th prince and had him join on many hunting trips and summer trips. There are several surviving paintings of Ling Fei or Wei Yingluo, including ones by the Italian missionary Giuseppe Castiglioni. In the painting, you can see quite a bit of what we have costume-wise for the ladies in the drama, including the three earrings and the dragons for the blouse. There's another painting by the Italian missionary that depicts the emperor, his court, and ladies in his harem while at the Mulan hunting grounds. The scene itself is set in 1760. Wei Yingluo died in 1775 due to illness at the age of 49. It's most likely that she died due to heartbreak because her youngest daughter, the ninth princess, died literally earlier that month in 1775 as well. On the day she died, the emperor gave her the posthumous title of Ling Yi Huang Guifei. The funeral, in stark contrast to Empress Na's last funeral, was an extravagant affair with many princes and princesses attending the funeral. In 1795, when the emperor abdicated, he granted her the posthumous title of Xiao Yichun Huang Hou, or Empress Xiao Yichun. In death, she became Emperor Qianlong's third empress. Here's a fascinating story about her tomb. In 1928, grave robbers used explosives to open and rob Emperor Qianlong's tomb. As a reminder, the Qing Dynasty fell in the early 1910s, where in 1928, the last emperor, Puyi, ordered repairs of the tombs. They were shocked by what they found. There were supposed to be six total corpses in the burial tomb or the mausoleum. But surprisingly, Ling Fei's corpse, when found, was shown to be well-preserved, almost as if you could still see her face. It seemed like when she was buried, her casket was very well sealed and the embalming of her corpse was so well done that it shocked those who found her corpse 150 plus years later. The remaining skeletons, I would say, did not receive this type of treatment, which is kind of odd because the bones found there also included those of Emperor Tianlong. So it's kind of interesting why Ling Fei or Wei Yingluo was the one in which kind of her corpse or her remains were found in a very well-preserved manner. In drama depictions, we normally see Ling Fei as the gentle, calm, and serene woman. Wei Yingluo is a completely different take, but hey, it worked well with audiences. And with that, I think it's time to close out and say goodbye to this drama for now. But before we do that, let's take a look at the impact of this blockbuster drama for the cast and I guess the production or the producer. Let's talk about the producer first. Yu Zheng is the producer for this drama and he has had many hits over the years. But he's also been mired with controversy with dramas being accused of plagiarizing other dramas or books or scripts so much so that he has lost lawsuits and has had to have certain dramas removed from streaming platforms or banned from ever airing again. So when this drama came out, it was certainly a big 
win for him that no one can deny, despite many people kind of wishing that it wasn't his drama. In terms of the cast, I would say the people that reaped the most benefit from this drama were Xu Kai, the actor who played Fu Hong, and Qin Lan, the actress for Empress Fu Cha. For the handsome Xu Kai, this was actually one of the first dramas he acted in at a relatively young age, around 22 or so. It most certainly put him on the map as a new it guy, worthy of propping up. He has since been in a number of big productions, such as Li Gexing or Court Lady with Li Yitong, Ancient Love Poetry, Tian Gu Chen with Zhou Dongyu, she and her perfect husband, Ai the Arba Ding Lu with Yang Mi. He also has a number of big productions in post-production or those that are waiting to air, including Xian Jian Xia Zhuan 6 or Chinese Paladin 6 with Esther Yu and Xue Ying Ling Zhu, Snow Eagle Lord with Gu Li Najia. That is to say, being in the story of Yanxi Palace was like hitting the jackpot for him and he is actually taking full advantage of it. I don't think there has been a role to date that has been as favored by audiences as Fu Hong, but we'll see how he uh, does in future shows. I would say two or three years ago, people online were somewhat criticizing his, I would say, physique. And especially in uh, She and Her Perfect Husband, where he did not have the greatest body when compared to the beautiful ladies such as Yang Mi. So, Xu Kai has been hitting the gym <laughs> quite a lot in recent months, and so you can see his six-pack abs or he's been showing them off. That is all to say is that he is really working hard to maintain his star power and step up in his career. The next actress we want to talk about is actually Qin Lan. We've mentioned that Karen and I have watched her dramas for the past 20 years and she still looks fantastic. This drama really helped regain her relevance in China, where prior she had leading roles but not necessarily huge hits. Parts of it was because people did not like her characters from two of her most famous dramas in the 2000s, but her turn as Fu Cha Rongyin completely changed people's perceptions of her and erased the negative memories of her prior roles. We mentioned in our intro to the drama episode that she's been able to take on leading roles in various capacities despite being older, aka in her 40s. But hey, she still looks amazing, and I always enjoy her on-screen presence. We talked about, or I did the review of her uh, medical drama, Dr. Tong, and you know, she has since found her boyfriend <laughs> from that drama. People are kind of still seeing where they pop up, the two of them, but at least so far, it's been a couple months, they're still going strong. I, or we last saw her on screen in the ingenious one, Yuan Xiangzhuan. Not in a lead role though, but I still highly enjoyed at least her presence in the drama, even if I didn't think the drama was the best. Now, who has not been able to maximize the benefits from headlining the story of Yanxi Palace is actually the lead, Wu Jinyan. She definitely hit the lottery after being a part of Yu Zheng's agency and headlining this drama because she suddenly became an overnight sensation with Yanxi Gonglue. She was only 26, 27 at that time. 
She had lead roles left and right and had a slew of jobs looking to her to headline. But none of them performed particularly well and her acting was ridiculed quite a bit since then for being too over the top and she's been unable to capture that old spark and ratings hit. What we do know is that she currently has a two-year gap in her acting output. In Chinese, it's called jinzu, or just being a part of a drama production. Everything we've seen in the last two years, such as Royal Feast, were filmed much earlier. It's unclear exactly what happened. But it is well documented that she did run afoul of CCTV or the Chinese Central Television Network by somehow missing an interview and being disrespectful of the reporter's times, which she was then publicly called out for. Apparently, it wasn't only the reporters from CCTV in which she, in Chinese, was called pai or being an arrogant celebrity. There are other reporters from other media companies at that time who reported that she or a certain celebrity was being a big, let's say, pain to schedule because she wanted everybody else's calendars to revolve around her instead of being punctual for her own interviews. All of this is speculated to have caused her to be more or less blacklisted from major productions and drama opportunities. Thus, the two-year gap of her being in any type of drama. Though, of course, this is just speculation. She's been on reality TV shows like Sisters, Who Make Waves season three last year. But there were plenty of ladies on that show that still had other acting jobs during the same time. What this means is that she will not have a steady stream of output for the near future that will remind people of her presence. She only recently joined the cast of a web drama, Mo Yunjian, that started filming in April with a cast of relatively unknown people. I'm looking at the cast and they're literally a decade younger than her right now. Who knows? This may be her way of trying to get back into the limelight at any cost, so we'll see if she can recapture that star power. As for some other members of the cast, Nie Yuan and Charmaine She, who played the Emperor and Empress Nala, respectively, have had steady careers for many years, and this essentially helped them maintain that stage presence. For some other women, though, being a part of this drama was a lifeline for them. I know that Wang Yuanke, who played Chun Fei, had said in prior interviews that the entertainment circle is especially cruel to women over 30, and she had to work very hard to land the role that is now highly remembered. The sad reality is that they will never reach A-list status, but if ladies who are above 30 can continue to get steady work, that's a silver lining. Well... That was just a recap on the current status of the cast. Let's close out our episode and discussion of the story of Yancy Palace with a final Q&A for our thoughts on the drama. We have a couple of questions we want to answer. Number one, who's your favorite character? And the rule here is that we are not allowed to repeat characters. So even if I say someone, Kathy is not allowed to say the same person. For me... Uh, my favorite character in the entire drama has got to be Empress Fu Cha. She is so beautiful, kind, serene, and such a different version of an empress from who we have 
known to be the Empress trope in various dramas. Also, just because we watched Empresses in the Palace a million times and we're just like, oh, the Empress must be a bad person. But in this drama, Empress Fu Cha is such a nice, gentle person that I want her to be my older sister. She's just such a rock star and so beautiful. That is my favorite character in the entire drama. Even though we haven't seen her in like 30 something episodes, but there we have it. Oh, that was mine. All right. I think I will instead choose Wei Ying Luo. She, as a lead character, really upended the normal trope as we saw in Empresses in a Palace where the lead kind of falls in love, falls hard, and then comes back with a vengeance. In the very first episode, she was like, mm, if you slap me, I'm going to find a way to slap you back. So with that, Wing Lo, as a character, was just so satisfying to watch on screen. She never really was down, and I enjoyed that. Okay, next question. Kathy, who do you think had the best character arc in the drama? Well, that will have to be Mingyu Xiaokai or the cute Mingyu. I remember in the first couple of episodes, I was so annoyed with her because she was like, I'm jealous of Wei Ying Luo. But look at what happened. It was those two after the Empress's death that really came together to make sure that Wei Ying Luo succeeded in the palace. I will never forgive Xuanpin for essentially goading Mingyu into committing suicide. Mingyu was about to get married to the man she loved, and she really, really cared for Wei Ying Luo. <sighs> well, that is my vote for the best character arc. Mingyu Xiaokai. You totally just picked the easiest and best person who had a great character arc. For me, I'm going to be a little bit different in that I actually really appreciated uh, Empress Nala's character arc. She grew from somebody who was probably too kind and just waiting for everyone to just, you know, walk all over her. And she realized that she needed to become powerful and have her own independence and strength. I personally feel like this drama would have been called uh, the story of Tian Qinggong or whatever, where she lived, if the, the drama didn't have to tie to history so much. Um, and really, I feel like her intelligence in the last five episodes of this drama really nosedived. But for the rest of the drama, I thought that even though she went full on to the dark side, I appreciated how strong she became throughout the drama. All right, next question. So who do you think was the best actor or actress in this drama? Uh, I'm going to have to go with Charmaine Shad. Uh, <laughs> I think that she actually acted circles around uh, Wu Jinyan or Wei Yingluo because Charmaine, she is a seasoned actress having been on TVB for many years. And she has joined uh, different productions in mainland China, but you can just tell she knows how to very subtly tell stories using various parts of her face or body language. And she can just capture the essence of somebody who is kind in one moment, but then very uh, strict and menacing the next. I loved Charmaine Shea in this drama, and this drama wouldn't be as good without her. Karen, you took mine. I will not pick her, but I also want to add in here that Charmaine spoke Cantonese throughout the production, but she did it in such a way that she memorized her counterpart's Mandarin phrases to start off with so that at the end of her lines, she would end it in Mandarin so that her 
counterparts during the scene know or knew when to start their scenes. That, for me, is the definition of a professional. So good for Charmaine. Hmm, since you took Charmaine, I, out of the main cast, would pick Nia Yuan, our actor for the Emperor Qianlong. Throughout the drama, when I saw him, I was like, you know what? I now understand why all the ladies of the harem fell head over heels over Emperor Qianlong. He was caring, he was intelligent, and he was a very respectful and, to be honest, feared emperor. So compare him to the emperor that we had for Empresses in the Palace or Pancake Face, you're like, hmm, okay, I understand. I will pick Nia Yuan as Emperor Qianlong <laughs> over our Emperor Yongzheng. Okay, next question. Who do you think is the most intelligent person in the palace or in the drama? I feel like this is the case with every palace drama. It's got to be the Empress Dowager. If we're just going to continue with Empresses in the Palace, this is Jin Huan. The Empress Dowager knew what was happening throughout the series, even though she was kind of hoodwinked by Wei Yingluo and Xunping about her whole daughter thing. But beyond that, she knew how to make sure that the emperor still showed filial piety to her, despite revealing that she was not his birth mother. And then she basically knew all the shenanigans that Empress Na La was up to. But for the greater good of the empire, as well as the imperial harem, she kind of just let it slide. It took Wei Yingluo way too long to figure out what Empress Nala was up to. But in my mind, I think the Empress Dowager knew well enough that this or certain events in the Imperial Harem all had something to do with Empress Nala. In the drama, the good aspect, the, the one really good aspect of it is that Ying Luo and the Empress made a pact to not kill any children in the Imperial Harem. And I feel like if Empress Nala really went that route of killing children, the Empress Dowager definitely would have stepped in way earlier. Okay, you definitely took mine. Uh, <laughs> that's a thing for both of us. We think we're so like in sync for a lot of our answers that we have to be like, okay, if they're not the most intelligent, who is the second most? And in this drama, we don't see someone like Su Peisheng, the head eunuch, who is like way intelligent. Um, I think Li Yu doesn't really fit the bill as being the most intelligent person in the drama or he doesn't give he's like more of like a comedic uh, presence in the drama. So if that were the case, I would say that outside of the Empress Dowager, it will actually be the Emperor Tianlong. I do think he is mm, probably more intelligent than Wei Yingluo because he's he just has like a bigger worldview. He's seen more. He's done more. He has more exposure to the various tactics in the harem or the palace and also outside in court. So I feel like the emperor is actually going to be my pick for the most intelligent. Not that I don't think Yingluo isn't smart or intelligent, but I think if we had to do a ranking here, it probably would be Empress Dowager, then Emperor, Ying Luo, and then maybe Empress Nala. Mm, I don't know. I can't. I, I struggle with who is more intelligent, Empress Nala or Ying Luo. Okay, last question. What is actually your favorite P 
piece of history that we learned about in this drama. Kathy, go. My favorite piece is really a running joke that I loved the fact that this drama really highlighted. And it's the fact that Emperor Tianlong loved, loved, loved stamping things to the point where in Chinese, we gave him the nickname also of Zhang Zong. As in we, as in people online, all called him Zhang Zong as well. Zhang means stamp, so he was a president stamper because he just loved stamping things. Looking at all the paintings, when we saw the paintings from his collection in the Palace Museum in Taipei, I could see several instances where he stamped several stamps onto a priceless piece of art. I remember talking to Karen and I was like, well, here's another one that was stamped by Emperor Tianlong. I, I can't it. tell, yeah, I can't tell if that raised the value of the painting by having a stamp or devalued it. What do you think? By having like 20 different stamps from Emperor Tianlong, do you think that made his this painting more valuable? Mm, unclear, but still highly entertaining. So the fact that this drama called him out for just stamping things <laughs> was quite funny. So this was probably my favorite piece of history. Karen, what about you? Okay, I think we're gonna still go back to Emperor Tianlong. I think I loved knowing or learning that he was a prolific poet. Loved writing poetry. <laughs> but it's a running joke that his poetry isn't actually really that good. <laughs> and he's kind of upset because there was that one scene where Ying Luo, you know, joked that his poems weren't good and he was really upset about it. And it is a running joke in real life that Tianlong loved creating poems, but they were nowhere near the caliber of the saints or the poet saints, such as uh, Li Bai or Du Fu. So I feel like that is something that humanizes Emperor Tianlong a little bit from all the other things that we learned about how uh, he conducted himself in real life. Um, and so I think that was, you know, the, the, the funniest piece of history that I learned. Yeah, this guy lived to his late 80s. He had a lot of time, but 40,000 poems in a lifetime. Ugh, that's a lot of poems. That wraps up our discussion of the story of Yanxi Palace or Yanxi Gonglue. Thank you so much for chasing this drama with us. We've had so much fun discussing with you all and hearing your thoughts about the drama. As a reminder, if you are looking for sites to watch dramas and you're in the US, head over to our sponsor, Jubao TV. That's J-U-B-A-O TV. It's a free service that has a selection of Chinese dramas and movies to watch. They also launched on Plex and Sling TV. You can stream it through the website Jumo, X-U-M-O, or else access it on TV if you have Xfinity or Cox Contour. Again, all of this is free. We will catch you all in the next episode where we head to the Tang Dynasty.